Today, we are back in the book of Hebrews, and so what we've been doing is studying the book of Hebrews, looking at this letter in the New Testament, and today we're going to talk about leadership, leadership. And so, uh, don't answer out loud, but think to yourself, what makes a good leader? What makes someone worth following? Is it someone who inspires people to greatness, or maybe it's someone who's respected by those that they lead? sure we all can think of examples in our mind of leaders or bosses, coaches, or someone, maybe some that inspired confidence and trust. And we probably also know of examples of leaders who make us wonder how in the world they got in the position that they're in. But a reality of the world is that there are positions of leadership in the world, whether you're looking at something like politics or the military or the workplace or even in something like sports. Every aspect of life seems to need qualified leaders with people who follow them. It's a part of our world. And the reason it's that way, I think in part, is because God designed it that way. He speaks about leadership often in His Word. In our passage today, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17, is what we're looking at today. It's one such passage that looks at this relationship between leaders and those whom they lead. Now, before we really dive into it, I have to be honest with you. The passages like this are, I find, very difficult to preach and talk about because it's talking about leadership, particularly leadership in the church, and it just seems really self-serving for me, a pastor, to read about what leaders are supposed to be doing and supposed to look like and how people are supposed to treat them. But as I reflected on it, studying it, what I really love about this passage is that the focus isn't on human leaders themselves. No, the focus actually fits into the theme we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews. If you've been here with us, you know that our focus has been this phrase, that Jesus is better. The book was written to people who were thinking about leaving the Christian faith, and the author wants them to know, no, Jesus is better. You should stick with him. And we'll discover as we read our passage, it's going to look at earthly, or you could call them lesser leaders, but only to make the point that Jesus is better. In fact, what's real interesting about this passage, verses 7 through 17, is it both starts and ends talking about human leaders, and in the middle it talks about Jesus. Uh, Some people may call this an inclusio. When I was in school, there was a term called chiasm we used to talk about it. It means you talk about something at the beginning and the end, but what's in the middle is what is most important. And so as we read this passage, I want you to focus particularly on what's in the middle between these two descriptions of leadership. So if you're not already there, I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, again, we're in 7 through 17. If you want to use that blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, I believe it starts on page 1,197. But once you've found it, uh, Hebrews 13, big 13, little 7, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. All right, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 7. Our author says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, 
For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Verse 15, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then finally, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your powerful word and the truth in it. What it says about how leadership works on this world, particularly as it's under your son. I thank you for what your son has done and how he inspires us to go and serve you around the world. I pray, God, that as we look at this passage, our focus would be directed on Jesus Christ. May we see how he's the main point. Yes, Lord, teach us to imitate, submit to the lesser leaders you've placed here, but captivate our heart with how your son is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we should stick with him. Even though he was rejected, we should follow him, Lord, and respond to what he has done by offering a sacrifice of praise and worshiping you in word and deed. God, help us to fall more in love with your son today. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, this passage, and I hope you saw it as we were reading it, it talked about leadership at the beginning and at the end. And then it talked about Jesus in the middle. So what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at the beginning and the end, and then we'll narrow our focus to look at Christ. So looking at the beginning and the end, we see how we're supposed to view and interact with earthly spiritual leaders. And our author's instruction, if you have the, the note sheet and want to write it down, is that we are to imitate and submit to lesser leaders. We're to imitate and submit to lesser leaders. And we're given a reason for that, because they will give an account. We imitate, submit to lesser leaders because they will give an account. And we don't know for sure, but these verses 7 and 17, they may be addressing some disharmony or conflict that's happening in this church. And the author's solution to that conflict, as he says in verse 7, is to remember and imitate their spiritual leaders. Remember and imitate those spiritual leaders. And I want to be clear, that's the focus here. These verses are talking about leaders within a church, not every leader at, at, at all times. In this passage, the leaders are those who rule in the church, those who have authority, responsibility, particularly those who speak and teach God's word. 
And this kind of imitation following their example, our author's actually spoken about it before. Back in chapter 6, he wrote to them and he said, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's called them to imitate those who are faithfully following Christ. In fact, here in verse 7, he seems to particularly be thinking about those who suffered for the faith. He may even be thinking about those who were killed because they were followers of Jesus Christ. He urges the Hebrews to consider, think about the outcome, result, conduct of their spiritual leaders' lives. And it's the same for us. If we want to persevere in the Christian life, if we want to follow Christ, we want to make Him the main part of our life, our main emphasis, well, then we should look to the example of those who have faithfully followed Him. Now, you may ask, well, well, who are we to follow? Who specifically am I to have in mind when I think about this imitation? Well, we should think about those who faithfully represent our Lord and Savior, those who make their lives about Jesus first. I think especially he has in mind, and I think it's helpful to have in mind those who already finished their race, those who have lived their life and who are now enjoying their eternal reward. I know for those of you who've been here for a while, I know I get a lot of flack for quoting old dead guys in my sermons, but part of the reason I do that is because these men are those who have faithfully finished their race. They've lived for the Lord, their race is over, and they faithfully followed him to the end. So I know they're worthy of imitation. I seek to learn from them and follow their example. So verse 7 may have in mind those who have passed or those who have suffered, but verse 17 at the end of the passage adds that the spiritual leaders they have now are to be obeyed or, or followed. They're to place confidence in them, be persuaded by what they say. Now, we, of course, should study God's Word on our own, but we should also have the humility to be taught by spiritual leaders. And as he says there, he says to submit to those leaders, those leaders in particular who are keeping watch over your souls. So he's not saying obey, submit to some random preacher on the internet. No, he's talking about the the men that God has placed in your local church to teach you God's Word. They, or really we, I, am here to help you. And the instruction is for believers to submit. Now, I know that's submit, that's a very uncomfortable word in the modern day. And the reason it is uncomfortable is because of the reality that there is so much abuse of authority in the world. People twist their authority for their own advantage, whether it's financial or some perverse desire they have. People use authority to take advantage of others. And to be clear, that is sinful, that is hurtful, that is wrong when that happens. Or when people use authority to cover up the sins of others, that is an abuse of spiritual authority. And to be clear, leaders who abuse their authority, they are not to be trusted or followed. But this passage does remind us that our default if a leader is faithfully following God, is that we should listen to what they say and obey what they say as they teach from God's Word. 
the call here to submit is tied to how these leaders teach God's word and that they model Jesus. We obey, submit to leaders as they follow Christ. And so that makes this a heavy challenge for those in spiritual leadership because they are lesser leaders. Jesus is perfect. They will mess up, but their lives should reflect Christ overall, the truth of his word. As one pastor, Mark Dever, put it, it's only when we are under God's authority that we are fit to be in authority. It's only when someone has made God first, first and foremost, that then they have God's authority to lead. And this is not just an instruction for particular people. Every believer is called to submit to the authority God has established. Again, talking spiritually within a church. Even among pastors and elders, part of the reason why we were so, or I was so passionate about moving us to a place where we had multiple elders is that each of us would have someone to submit to. You know, when elders meet, we don't always agree on everything, but that's why there's multiple of us. And so if three feel one way, one feels someone else, the impetus is on that one to say, okay, I submit to you guys. I trust your wisdom in this area. When believers submit to their leaders, our text tells us that it makes leadership a joy. It says, uh, keep watching your souls, let them do this with joy. And then it's not a burden, it's not a groaning, it's not sorrow. So brothers and sisters, pastor, you can bring joy into my life, or you can be a burden, grief, and stress. Now, again, when I say that, it's very easy to take these verses and use it to manipulate people be like, this verse says, obey your spiritual leaders, so everything Pastor John says goes. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. Yes, I, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm not saying that my words are the end all be all or anything like that. Please do not hear that. I'm not telling you to ignore or excuse wrong. I'm definitely not telling you to brush aside sin. I'm not telling you you can't ask questions or have a conversation with the leaders at the church, or express concerns. I'm not, not saying that. I am sharing the reality, though, that spiritual leadership depends on us working together, our willingness to work together for God's glory. And intentionally making things difficult for churches, spiritual leaders, it serves no advantage. It's unhelpful. Because our text tells us godly leaders, godly leaders they serve for the benefit of their churches. Again, that doesn't mean that I get to do everything I want because, look what the text says, they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Brothers and sisters, God will hold me and the other elders of the church accountable for you and for your spiritual growth. When the day comes that we, that we die, Dan, Tom, Pastor Tom, me, when we die and we're before God, God will ask us, what did you do? with my church? That's, that's the question we'll get before the throne of God. Not every believer has that question. We're asked about our areas of responsibility, but that is the question that we will get. Scripture speaks about this burden. James 3 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. You know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Why? Because he obtained it with his own blood. Your elders in the church are responsible for what Jesus bought, what Jesus died for, what he gave his life for. 
So believe it or not, brothers and sisters, I, we, we are here to help you. For me, that's literally my job description is to help you grow spiritually. Now, we may not agree on every single little issue, every single circumstance. We may not view it all the same way, but my goal is to help you know God more. And I'm really uncomfortable when people use these verses to to force something, so I'm not doing that at all. But I, I would just humbly ask you to search what I say, what I teach by Scripture. And if it fits, if what I say fits what God says, then that is something you should obey because it's not me saying it, it's God saying it. And if there's a debated issue, I'd ask you to extend charity and grace because my desire is to help you grow spiritually. Not because the church is about me, not because it's about the other elders, but really church is about the better leader that we have. And most of the passage focuses on him, our better leader, Jesus Christ. More important than remembering these lesser leaders or doing what they say is remembering Jesus. And the author wants the Hebrews to know, first and foremost, that Jesus is the same. He does not change. Jesus is the same. So instead of wandering away from the faith, they should stick with him. Jesus is the same, so stick with him. As verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That means he's trustworthy because he can be relied on to be the same, to show the same love, grace, and care to us throughout eternity. Our world changes all the time. Things go up and down. If you don't believe our world changes all the time, what rock have you been under the past two years? Our world changes all the time. And we change all the time. We feel one way one day, we feel another way the next day. We change, but he doesn't. When Pastor F.B. Meyer, I liked how he put it, he said, time is foiled in Jesus. He has passed out of its sphere and is impervious to its spell. Time does not affect, right? He is the same. He doesn't grow weary, and ever since that Easter morning, he does not die anymore. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, the author talked about how Christ is eternal. He was quoting Psalm 102 in chapter 1 which says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Oh, friends, Jesus Christ was involved in creation, making everything we see. He lived as a human, he died, he rose again. Now he offers salvation to us as he sits at God's right hand and he will reign forever in heaven. One scholar, F.F. Bruce says, he never needs to be replaced and nothing can be added to his perfect work. So if Christ is the same, what does that mean for us? Well, verse 9 tells us that we should not be misled or carried away by diverse or strange, various other teachings and doctrines. We should not let other views distract us or attract us to them. False teaching can go under many names. It can go under the name Christian. It can go under the name evangelical. It can go under the name Baptist. What is he talking about? He's talking about any teaching that departs from who Jesus is, that Jesus Christ and he alone 
is the one who saves. There is no new faith. There's only this true faith in Christ and in Christ alone. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said, the only way we can persevere in the right faith is to hold to the foundation and to not in the smallest degree depart from it. We hold to that foundation. Now, there's a very particular issue going on here in our passage. It seems to have something to do with food. If you look at verse 9, it says, Do not be led away by those diverse and strange teachings. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. And we're not there, so we don't know exactly the issue. Maybe it had something to do with people saying you should only eat uh, clean, kosher food. Maybe it had something to do with a special type of fellowship meal that was going on in Jewish circles at the time. Regardless, the message these believers were hearing from some non-Christians was, if you eat certain things in a certain way, then you will grow closer to God. But if you eat the wrong things in the wrong way, then you will go further from God. But the truth is, what we eat doesn't save us. It cannot make us holy. Only God's grace does that. God's grace is unearned. It's undeserved. God's grace is what strengthens and establishes us in this life. Rules about eating, eating certain kinds of food versus others, they don't give us a spiritual benefit. They don't profit us spiritually. You could do every religious ritual there is. Eat everything this religion says or that one or the other. It will not give you true, lasting peace. Paul writes about this in Colossians. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, the substance belongs to Christ. And that's why he says in verse 10 that we have food, that those who serve the tent, he's talking about the Old Testament tabernacle, those who remain in Judaism, who have not come to Christ, they have no right to eat of this blessing. He's being clever here. He's making that point once again, like our series, that Jesus is better. He's saying Jesus is better than that old faith. Because yes, we don't offer sacrifices on a literal altar, but on the cross, we could say Jesus died on the altar of salvation. He died so that we could come to God. And now the final sacrifice has been paid. Now this eating he's talking about here means we enjoy the benefits of a relationship with Christ. We can know Jesus. We can know him personally and grow closer to him every day. We can feast every day at the table of his grace. We do that as we learn about him in his word. We can grow closer to him as we think about who he is and, and what he has done for us. We grow closer to Him as we pray to Him, as we communicate with Him, and we grow closer as He changes us so that our lives more and more reflect Him. Our passage reminds us no further sacrifices are needed. We should stick with Jesus and be secure in Him. Now, I'll grant that uh, today there's not a lot of people who think themselves more spiritual because of what food they eat or don't eat. There may be some who do that, but most of us, that's not a temptation that we deal with every day. People telling us, well, you're not spiritual because you're eating the wrong things. But we can do the same thing these believers were tempted to do. 
we can make something in our lives, something else more important than Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. We can make some action we do or some rule we follow makes us more spiritual or better than other people. We can lower what Christ has done and lift up something that we are doing. There could be many ways we do this. Maybe uh, how we vote. I vote this way, that makes me more spiritual than you. Or what we wear. I, I wear this, would never wear that, that makes me more spiritual than you. Maybe when and how we read the Bible. I read the Bible this time, that makes me more spiritual than you. Or what pastors we like. I like listening to this person rather than that person, so that makes me better. Oh, friends, the truth is we are only made right with God by His grace through Jesus Christ alone. Not by these things that we do that add up to make us better. No, by what He has done. And let me ask you, do you know that grace? Do you know Him? That grace can be ours because Jesus was rejected for us. That's what the author also wants us to know. Jesus was rejected, so we should follow him. Jesus was rejected, so we should follow him. Verse 11 in our passage speaks to how in the Old Testament, the sin offering, when they would offer animal sacrifices, the body of the animal was burned outside of the camp of God's people, away from the people. As it says in the, the verse, the bodies of those animals, they would take the blood, they would bring the blood into the place where the offerings were, into the holy place. The high priest would bring the blood in there, but the body was burned outside the camp. So this was animal sacrifices they did in the Old Testament so to represent how their sin could be paid for, atoned for, so they could be right with God. One example of this is in the book of Leviticus. It talks about the bull for the sin offering or the goat. Their blood is brought in to make atonement, but their bodies shall be carried outside the camp. And there their skin, flesh, even their dung shall be burned up with fire. So our author is reminding them of this. The blood is brought into the tent, the tabernacle, the temple, but the body is burned outside the camp. Most likely that was to represent how God could not be in the presence of sin, how he pushes sin away from him. If somebody in uh, Old Testament Judaism, if they had sinned or if they were unclean, they had to live outside the camp until the right sacrifice had been offered. It means being away from, being, from acceptance of the people. And so our author makes a comparison here. He says, so Jesus, he was sacrificed, he was killed, he was buried outside of the gate, outside of the city of Jerusalem. Like the bodies of those animals, he was killed away from being accepted by others. But unlike those animals, his sacrifice was permanent. It fulfilled everything those sacrifices were intended for. Unlike those animals, his blood wasn't sacrificed in the temple, but he was away from the city of God's people. He was rejected by people. Jesus was killed like a criminal. He died with those who were cut off from God's people. Why did this happen? Why was he rejected? Why was he cut off and killed? Well, friends, so that we could be accepted, so that we could be brought in to God's presence and know and have a relationship with him, so we could be restored to that right relationship. He made us holy. He set us apart. He sanctified us by His sacrifice. He shed His blood so that we could be 
forgiven. Several weeks ago, we read in chapter 9, talking about Jesus, he entered once for all into holy places, not by means of goats and calves, but by his own blood, his own death, and he has secured an eternal redemption, an eternal salvation. He has purchased it for us. So let me ask you, are you here? Do you know this salvation? Has Jesus purchased your salvation? Have you come to faith in him? The way we do that is turning from sin, believing, trusting in what he has done for us. He was rejected so that you could be accepted. Do you know him? Now, if you do, well, then we're given instruction of our responsibility. We are called to follow him. We're called to go outside the camp and bear the reproach or the disgrace that he endured. We should leave the love and acceptance of the world around us to faithfully follow Christ. This is what God's true people do. Back in chapter 11, we looked at the example of Moses. Moses was a Hebrew, but he ended up being raised by the Egyptians. But when he became an adult, look what it says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting temporary pleasures of sin. Why did Moses do this? Because he considered the reproach, the disgrace, the suffering of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Moses realized following Christ, suffering with him is worth more than getting everything I want now. Oh, this is a call for us to follow Christ more and more, to walk with him. Even though we know that following Jesus will not be very popular, it will look strange to the rest of the world. These Hebrew believers, our author seems to be telling them, he's commiserating with them. He says, I know that people are mocking you for following Christ. That they're saying, well, you're cut off from God's people. You're not one of God's people. You're different. You're one of those Christians. There's so few of them. And if we follow Christ faithfully, we will be looked down on too. We will be rejected as well. But in that, we're following the path of our Lord and Savior. British pastor Charles Spurgeon talks about the world, says, if their practices are your practices, if their pleasures are your pleasures, then their God is your God and you are one of them. There is no being a Christian except being shut out of the world's camp. Oh, friends, you can come to church here on Sunday and then you can live like everyone else around you every other day of the week, but that is not what it means to be a true Christian, a true follower of God. True Christians will make decisions that won't make sense to the rest of the world because we are called to live differently. Not called to fight, conquer the world, force everybody to see things the same way we do. No, but live as a follower of Jesus. And that means it will probably, in some ways, be a lonely life because not many take this course. But as Pastor David Platt said, we cannot follow Jesus and stay in safe or comfortable religion. We can't follow Jesus in a way that's safe and comfortable, that everybody likes and loves what we're doing. No, we have to leave comfort and safety behind to truly follow Jesus and discover true eternal joy. Because 
we know, as verse 14 says, that here we have no lasting, we have no enduring, continuing city, but we seek and look for that eternal city still to come. This world we see around us is temporary. It's not our permanent home. We seek something better still to come. Back in chapter 11, there was a whole list of people who faithfully followed God. And the author says, why? Because they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And so God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city, a home with all of God's people, not here, but in the world to come. Now, friends, cities here on earth, they will rise, they will fall, but God's kingdom lasts forever. And so we should not expect perfect peace, perfect comfort here on earth. We shouldn't expect things to always go our way here on earth. That doesn't mean we don't care about this life. That doesn't mean we don't care about our homes, our family. It doesn't mean we don't care about things like, like our country or those we we love and care about, but it means we hold all of those things loosely. We know that they're not permanent. They will not last forever. The quote I had earlier in this one was from a sermon I heard David Platt give on this passage. And when we got to verse 14, this is the point he made. He says, it is time to stop caring for the good of our nation more than we care about going to the nation's. We can get so wrapped up in what we're thinking about now that we miss that God has called us to make disciples around the world. That's part of what God has called us to, how we faithfully follow Him. Joy shared today about how she is doing that, going to places where Christ is not known so that people could know Him. That's a type of decision you make when you realize that this world is not our home. We are waiting for an eternal kingdom to which we truly belong. Joy shared today, maybe you're here and, and you feel that call too. Maybe God is raising you up to go to those who have not heard and share with them. He uses people of all ages, shapes, sizes, and types. Maybe God has called you to make disciples around the world as well. But what about for all of us? What is the application that we can take from this passage? Well, again, what's so helpful about the book of Hebrews is since it's a sermon, the author gives us the application. And what does he tell us to do? Oh, he says to worship Jesus in word and deed. Verse 15, 16, he says, worship Jesus in word and deed. Verse 15 says, through him and only through Jesus, we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. What does that mean, sacrifice of praise? He also tells us that. He says that is fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. It's verbal praise to God, giving thanks to Him, professing, acknowledging who God is and what He has done for us. The book of Psalms gives an example of this, Psalm 107. It says, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. We're to continuously thank God, praise Him, delight in what He has done. So yes, we don't live in Old Testament times. We don't have to bring an animal to sacrifice before God. No, our sacrifice is praising God, rejoicing in Him, singing to Him. It's how we proclaim our allegiance to Him. 
If you remember back in school, every day you had to do the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, singing, praising God, that's how we proclaim our allegiance to Him. We sing praises about and to our Lord because our lives should be defined by thankfulness, not bitterness, but thankful for everything God has done to save us and provide for us. But it's not just the words we say. Verse 16 reminds us that we should not neglect or forget to do good, to share what we have with those in need. And this also is a common theme in Scripture. We're studying the book of James here in the sanctuary on Wednesdays. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. We faithfully follow God in giving what we have to those in need. But before we end today, I want to point out this very last phrase in verse 16. Yes, we're not to neglect to do good, share what we have. And yes, verse 15 says we're to offer up a sacrifice of praise. But look what it tells us there. It says, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that's a very powerful statement because you know what that's saying? That's saying you, you can please God. You can bring joy to God. You can please Him. When we praise Him, when we live for Him, that pleases God. Again, we see this in the Old Testament. God, the prophet Micah says, will the Lord be pleased if we offer thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? What if we give our firstborn son for our transgression, something from our body for the sin of my soul? But no, God has told us what is good and what He requires. He requires us to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. When our life has been changed by God, we live for Him. When we praise Him, this pleases God. If we know God through Jesus Christ, He changes us so that we live in a way that reflects Him, and then we please God. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, Pastor John, what does any of that have to do with leadership? I thought you were talking about leadership this morning. Oh, but, but hopefully you see the focus of our author here. Yes, he says, God has given us spiritual leaders that we are to imitate and obey, submit to, but we only do that as they model the greater leader, the better leader, Jesus Christ, because he is always the same. And because he faithfully followed God, he was rejected by the world. So the call for us is to follow him and to stick with him. And he also gives us how we're to respond even right now. Friends, I'd ask that we'd leave today living lives that please Him. And right now, in just a moment, we can do exactly what the text says. We can offer a sacrifice of praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, because He is worthy of that praise.